We were in a series called The Promise, looking at this incredible story of God's people moving into God's promises. I love this story. I have. I've, I've, I've taught on it so many times. It's, just, it's one, of my favorite, one of my favorite things. I want to talk to you about perspective this morning. How many of you guys wear glasses like I do? Okay, you ever notice I take them off and on a lot? Here, momentarily, I'm going to take them off and leave them off for good because I can choose between either seeing you or seeing this, and guess which one I need to choose? <laughs> so I remember when I, I didn't wear glasses early on. It wasn't until I was 13 or 14, and I just saw my dad's glasses laying on the desk and just being a normal, goofy kid, I picked them up and put them on just to goof around like my kids do. But I remember in that particular moment, the most amazing thing happened is that the world out there that I had known for you know, 12, 13 years suddenly changed in a good way. And things that I thought were normal, I realized were not normal. I always thought that it was perfectly normal that I couldn't see the outline of trees or I couldn't read on the, the, the chalkboard from the back of the class. I just thought that was everybody, you know. And it wasn't until I, I put corrective lenses on that a whole world opened up to me begin to see. There's a change in perspective. I could see things differently than I had before. And if you were to tell me several you know, days before that particular event, if you were to try to convince me that I wasn't seeing things correctly, I would have you know, laughed at you and said, you're crazy. Of course I'm seeing things correctly. I think perspective is a big thing in the Christian life. It's a big thing in my own life. I realize that so many times when I'm, if I'm moving into a difficult season and, and I'm, I'm, I'm running the danger of losing perspective, I need, I need, I've, I've got to do whatever it takes to stop and regain the correct view of reality because I often have the wrong view of reality. I've got to step away. Sometimes that means physically getting out of the situation and going on a drive. You know, I, I find that when Meg and I are under a lot of stress, sometimes if we just get away for a couple of days or even a day, drive somewhere, anywhere out of the city, just within a moment of a, mem- a number of hours, our perspective begins to return. We begin to see things correctly. And the story of, of, of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, all that, all that story is, is a contrast between two different realities, two different generations this first generation had encountered the supernatural power of God. They'd been, they'd been freed from uh, the captivity in Egypt. They'd seen the hand of God part the seas and move them in. They had seen the goodness of God with their own hands. But when it comes to stepping into God's promises and claiming the land, they, they were so nearsighted they could not possibly see how God would accomplish his purposes. All they could see were giants and walls and problems and obstacles. And then fast forward 40 years, another generation has the opportunity to see things differently. They have a chance to have the right perspective and to have the right view. Let me read. This is from Numbers chapter 13. This is that first generation. They go and they they explore this land of Canaan. They come back and they report to Moses about all of the incredible things that they found. We went into the land, verses chapter 13, beginning in verse 27. We went into the land to which you sent us, they say, 
And it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. They brought it back. The Bible says that they brought this one cluster of grapes. It was so heavy, it was on a, suspended on a pole. Here is its fruit, but, verse, verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak. Go to verse 31. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. These were literal giants. And then this last final heartbreaking sentence. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So this first generation, this grasshopper generation were paralyzed by fear. They were stuck by fear. They had seen all of this goodness and they were paralyzed by fear because they had the wrong perspective. They were fixated upon the problem instead of on what God had told them to do. And I'm thinking in my own life, it's, that's, that's, such a, that's such a major problem as we're moving into God's promises is that we get the wrong perspective of things. Am I right on that? We lose it so easily. And part of it is, is that we have faulty assumptions about God's promises. How many of you have always thought that if God's promised it, it's gonna be easy? I, I, I find that that's, that's an assumption that takes root in my heart, that as God has called me to something, then every door is going to fly wide open, and the road is going to be paved with rose petals, and there'll be a marching band cheering me on along the way. Doesn't God want good things for me? Why would God promise me something that it would be difficult? And that's part, that's part of what's corrupted their perspective is that they assumed that because God called them to that, then everything would be easy and there would be no obstacles. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So let's jump into Joshua chapter two. This is now their sons and their daughters. This is now the second generation. They've got an opportunity. Can they change perspectives? Can they face their fear and believe God's promises? We looked last week at how it begins with taking faith, with taking strength and courage in the Lord. Chapter two says this, begins this way. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So just like Moses sent spies into the land 40 years before, now Joshua is gonna do the same thing. He's gonna send two. He says, sneak over under cover of darkness. Go scout out the land. And he says, I especially want you to pay attention to the city of Jericho. That's going to be our first offensive. That's going to be the first place that we take. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. Y'all, this is getting racy now. This is PG-13. But it makes perfect sense in a city like Jericho for men to be coming under cover of darkness and making their way to a prostitute's house. Nobody would have paid them any attention. It was a perfect cover. So they go under cover of darkness. So they went, they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, somebody reported them. King of Jericho said, look, there's some, some of these Israelites have come here to spy out the land. So king of Jericho, he sends this message. He says, bring out 
the men. We saw them come in and into your house. They, they're actually spies. Rahab, send them out. And Rahab lies. She says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, they, they left. They went on their way. So you better hurry up and catch them. The Bible is so full of just weird stuff. Prostitutes and lies and intrigue. And yet somehow God is still in all of this. I want to jump up here, verse 6. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. So she sends them on their way. They're not here, guys. They've, they've already left the city. You better hurry before. And they say, okay. And they leave and they catch them and the city gates, the, the, the gates are shut. But I want you to read verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and she said to them, she says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Get the, guys, church, come on, get a picture of this. For 40 years, the weight and the fear of this land has been heavy upon the hearts of the people of Israel. Mom and dad said we can't do this. Mom and dad told us stories about this land. Mom and dad saw with their own eyes how tall the walls are and how big the people are. And this, this perspective has been ingrained into their minds for 40 years. And now these men, these two, they come under cover of darkness and they're face to face with the enemy. They're sitting at a table figuratively with the enemy. They're waiting to hear the bad news. They're waiting for Rahab to say, guys, you better get out of here because the king of Jericho is sending an army to crush you guys. He knows you're here. We've got, we've got a battalion of giants that are nine feet tall. They're going to come and crush you. You better go. They're expecting, I bet they're expecting to hear this kind of thing. But they sit down and Rahab opens her eye. And I'm just, I'm imagining this. I'm imagining that, that Rahab's eyes are wide. And maybe they're a little bit red. Maybe she's shaking a little bit. And she says, she says, listen, you two. You have no idea how terrified we are of you. And they say, wait, hold on, wait. What, what did you just say? And she says, we are terrified of you. We have heard that I know that the Lord has given this land of you. She says, guys, guys, this whole city is gripped with fear because of you. Because we know that the Lord is with you. We have heard, verse 10, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sinai and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And this is an incredibly different perspective. Great fear, melting in fear. Here's the cool thing. Rahab says that we have heard, we have heard, we have heard, we have heard. In other words, it's all secondhand reports. They've not seen anything firsthand like God's own people have. God's own people have seen. We haven't just heard, we've seen the waters of the Red Sea roll back. We have seen the Nile turn red with blood. We have seen frogs and gnats and all these things. We have seen God just come in and completely wipe out our enemies. And Rahab says, we haven't seen any of that, but we've heard about it. 
And because of that, we are gripped and consumed. We're melting with fear. I got to tell you this. Listen to me. The battle for Jericho has already been won by this point. Those of you in the military, you know what psychological warfare is. It's getting into the mind of the enemy to convince him he's already lost. Before a round is fired, before a siege begins, this battle has already been won. Why? Because the enemy's courage has already failed. We're singing the words of this song today. God has already gone and fought the battle. Because if it's lost in the hearts, it's lost on the battlefield. And the enemy has already lost the battle. Just like 40 years ago, God's people already lost the battle. They came back. They said, we can't do it. They already lost the battle. They're even stepping foot in there. I'm, I'm convinced that faith is often a matter of simply choosing your perspective. The facts haven't changed, but the perspective is vastly different. They didn't come in. These, these two didn't walk in. They didn't walk in and, and, and Rahab say, oh, those giants, they're gone now. Yeah, they left. And all, all, you know, all of our armies, we disbanded them all. The walls, we kind of took them down. You know, they were hard to maintain. None of that changed. The facts didn't change. Nothing, nothing about the, uh, no obstacles ever changed in the situation. The only thing that was different was the perspective we begin to see things from God's perspective. And I believe, I believe, had, had the spies 40 years ago sat down and talked with the enemy, they would have heard this very same thing. I believe they would have heard it. They simply saw and they just said, okay, it's not enough. We can't do it. But what if they had sat down and look at the fear in their enemy's eyes? I believe they would have heard the very same thing. Two different perspectives. And I think faith is often a matter of choosing your perspective. So when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. God isn't just fighting battles. God is is reorienting the reality for the enemy. And so Rahab, she makes a bargain. She knows this is not a good situation. She knows that the battle is already lost for her and for her family and for her people. So she makes a bargain with them. And she ensures her own survival. And she lets them down through a rope in the window. She's up there against the city gates or against the city wall. She lets them down over the wall. And she sends them away and she ties a red cord in the window. Isn't that interesting? A little bit of prophetic symbolism. Red cord in the window, meaning when destruction comes, pass me over. When death comes to this place, pass over this house. And so they leave, they go into the hills, they stay there three days. It's interesting, three days. We've seen that in verse one. The pursuers are searching all over and they come back and they sit down with Joshua. I'm thinking this is a tense moment for Joshua. He sent them out. And I think he sends them out at the same time that he consecrates the people. 
because he tells the people in three days, get ready, we're gonna see God do wonders. So in one sense, he's saying that in faith as he sends out the spies and he's waiting for them day after day. He waits one day, another day. He's, I wonder if he's fearing for their, their life and their safety. Maybe they've been taken. Maybe they've been killed on the road. Maybe they've been executed there by the king of Jericho. But they come back and they sit down. They're out of breath. They're so excited. They say, Joshua, listen to us. Listen to us. You'll never believe what we've seen. And I'm betting Joshua says, well, tell me about it. Are the giants still there? Oh yeah, the giants are still there. They're big. (laughs) They're bigger than what we thought. Joshua says, what about their armies? Do they still have armies? Oh yeah, Joshua, they got a really big army. What about their walls, guys? Tell me, at least tell me that there's some broken down parts of the wall. Like, oh no, Joshua, there's actually a double wall. It's even stronger than we thought. And Joshua's like, well, what's the good news? The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. Why? Because all the people are melting with fear. And there's a perspective change. How do we maintain proper perspective? when we're staring at facts that don't add up, that don't make sense with God's promises? How do we align this reality with this reality? What God says versus what we see. How do these two things come into alignment? Let me give you three keys that I think have helped me in my own life. Can I do that? First of all is this. They're not easy, by the way. I'm sorry. Number one, This is really gonna gonna bless your socks. Don't expect difficulties to disappear. Or you could say this, expect hardship. Somebody say amen. That will help your perspective change a whole lot. It will, I promise. That doesn't mean that you have a a, a fatalist view of life. That doesn't mean that you just go into every situation assuming the worst. That's not what I'm talking about. But don't expect difficulties to disappear just because God has called you to something. In fact, in fact, you can almost expect the opposite. Does God want there to be major obstacles in your life? Somebody say yes. Brave. Why? Because God gets more glory when he does difficult things. God does more glory when he gets impossible things. What glory is there in giving you what's easy? How does that glorify him? How does that build your faith? How does that strengthen your character if everything is easy? Let me tell you what I mean. Joshua, Jesus and Lazarus. You all you know that story? Lazarus is a dear, dear friend of Jesus. The Bible calls him the one that Jesus loved. Dear friend, closer probably than anybody else on earth during his time on earth. And word comes when Jesus is doing his itinerant ministry, word comes that Lazarus is sick, very sick. And his family's so worried about him that they've sent for Jesus. Why? Because they know what? Jesus can heal. Easy. 
Come, it's, it's like super easy. It's like taking Advil. Hey, Lazarus is really, really sick. This isn't a cold. This is something, something else that's going on. Call Jesus. He'll take care of it. They run and they tell Jesus this. And Jesus says this. He says, this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory that the Son of Man may be glorified. And the Bible says, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days. That's unfair. That hurts. Just when we need God to show up, God delays. Just when we're at a crisis and a point of absolute desperation, God decides to take a coffee break. And you know the outcome though, right? There's a whole lot more glory in raising someone from the dead than simply laying hands on someone that's sick and seeing them come. And Jesus knows that. Don't expect difficulties disappear. The hardship is often there for our sake. Sometimes the difficulties are there for your sake. Deuteronomy chapter 7, several uh, before our story today, Moses is giving his pep talk to the second generation. He's getting them fired up about it. He's reminding them of the covenant. He's reminding them everything that God did to get them to this point. And he says, this is, a, is in chapter 7. It's, it's, a, it's a strange, it's, a, it's like this little hidden little nugget that you almost miss. And I think that if we're not careful, we miss it too. It says this, the Lord your God is talking, talking to Joshua, talking to the people now. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Y'all say yes, amen. The Lord says, hold up, wait, I'm not done with that sentence. The Lord will drive out the nations before you little by little. Oh, come on. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. God says, you're not ready for the full measure of my promises yet. You need to endure a little hardship, a little difficulty as I make a way for you. I think the second way we can maintain the right perspective is to stake your future on God's past. I was going to say to stake your future on your past, but you may not have that great of a past with God. But if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you're going to have a history of his faithfulness. Am I right? Anybody have a history of God's faithfulness in your life? Anybody see miracles in your life? Okay, stake your future Stake, 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 stake the future, what's ahead of you, on what's happened behind you. That can help you have a good faith perspective. In other words, I'm confident moving this way. Why? Because I can see, I remind myself of what's happened this way. In fact, that's how the ancient Hebrews really viewed the future. They couldn't see into the future in the abstract. They viewed going into the future like you're walking backwards. I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't see it. But what I can see is everything that's happened behind me. Everything I can see is what God has done in the past. Rahab, in verse 10, she says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, what you did to the two Amorite kings. Both of these happened when? In the past. 
She is afraid now. She's afraid of the future. Why? Because she knows what God has just done in the past. So if you're feeling like your perspective is being, is being clouded or distorted, then stop and recount your own history with the Lord. Are you writing it down? Are you journaling? Are you keeping evidence of his faithfulness somewhere? Because I promise there could become a time when you want to go back to that and remind yourself of who God is and what he's done. And when you do that, you're going to say, he did it there, he did it there, he did it there, he did it there, he did it there. I bet he's going to do it now. I bet he's going to do it here. I bet he's going to do it again. Stake your future on God's past in your life. That's the second one. Third one is this. Remember that God's reputation is ultimately at stake. When I say reputation, I mean glory. God is deeply concerned with his own glory. And that's not narcissism. Because God knows that his own glory is the very essence of reality. Just like you and I are deeply concerned with oxygen. I need it. God knows that the world is made to contain the glory of God. God's reputation. If you're losing your perspective, remind yourself that there's more at stake than simply your own reputation or your own well-being. And I want you to take comfort in that. This is not a negative thing. Take comfort in this because God is concerned about his glory. He wants to be glorified in your situation and he will do it. And if you're in alignment, you can sort of like take, you can take a lot of comfort in that and just knowing, I can rest a little bit. God's not going to let his name be slandered in this situation. God's not going to let his promises be, be sort of, you know, laughed at in this situation. God's got a reputation in my life to uphold. I love it. I love hearing these stories about healing. You know, going to kind of go overseas, you know, to, to the Middle East or any other place where, where there's not a strong Christian presence. I love to hear these stories about missionaries, about, you know, Christian brothers and sisters who are in this situation of absolute hopelessness. Maybe they're in a village where people don't know the Lord whatsoever and they bring this sick chief. You ever heard these stories? These are real stories. They bring this sick chieftain to the missionary. And it's like, okay, either, either God, either you heal this person or they're going to kill me here and they're going to laugh at me and they're, no, they're going to know that there is no truth in what I'm saying. I love that kind of desperation because it puts God's glory in such a posture where he will not let his, not let his honor be displayed to the world. And God heals again and again and again. See, what it, look at what Rahab says in verse 10. Um, uh, verse 11, rather. Our, hell, our hearts melted in fear because of you. Look at the outcome of it. That's the cause. What's the effect? For the Lord your God is in heaven above and on the earth below. Why is God doing these things? Not just so they can have real estate, so that the world can know who he is. God wants the world to know who he is through your circumstance and through your life. God wants his glory to be manifest to the people around you. And any time that our ambition becomes God's glory alone, we've shifted the playing field. 
We've changed the rules of the game suddenly. If your ambition is only for your own outcome, for your own well-being, for your own whatever blessing. But what happens when you shift your ambition and says, my ambition is about the glory of God. All of a sudden, it's not a fair playing field anymore. We've put ourselves on a whole other level. We've gone from this is what I want to God, this is for your glory. And God says, and this is where I'm going to step up and I'm going to show myself strong. He says the same thing to Martha in the Lazarus story. He says, did I not tell you? Did I not, Martha, didn't I say to you that if you only believed that you would see the glory of God? God's reputation is ultimately at stake. And so in this chapter, their perspective shifts. And the battle honestly is already won by the time this chapter closes. The enemy is already defeated. It was just a matter of seeing it correctly. And next week we're going to move into culmination of this story. If the victory is already ours, how do we walk this out? How do we walk it out? How do we walk out? How do we walk into God's promises? Once we've heard him clearly, once we're in covenant relationship with him, once we have a clear perspective, once we've committed ourselves to God's glory, how do we walk this out? There's some really unusual things that happen in this story. Just when you think you understand how God works, he comes and <laughs> he just switches things around a little bit. Band, come on up if you would. Our faith is not dependent upon our circumstances. This is a faith lesson for Joshua chapter two. Our faith is not dependent upon our circumstances, but upon the promises and the power of God. Look at your circumstances and say, you don't matter. You don't matter. As I walk, as we walk in covenant faithfulness with him, he will accomplish the impossible things. I'm praying clear perspective for you and for me, for my family, for myself. I want to see things as God sees them. I'm praying for you this week. I'm praying for some corrective lenses to be on our hearts. I know I need it. So Father, we bless your name, Lord. All your promises are yes and amen. All that you've promised us, you will accomplish. We are not grasshoppers in our own eyes. We're more than conquerors. We have nothing to fear, for you are with us. We expect difficulty. That's all right. We know that you're laboring with us. We remind ourselves of what you've done in the past. And know, know that you don't change. You never change. And you're going to do it again. You're going to do it again, Lord. What you've done, you're going to do it again. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.